You know, when I was growing up, one of the uh, TV shows that became quite popular was Star Trek. I don't know if you remember Captain Kirk and Dr. Spock and Scotty and all the rest of the crew, but whether or not you like Star Trek, there's a line at the beginning of the show that I think almost everybody can quote. To boldly go where no man has gone before. They're not just going where no man has gone before, but they're boldly going there. And I believe that that statement resonates within, within us human beings because no one wants to just go through life. There's something in each of us that makes us want to go boldly. We're not content with what we already know or what we, we already can do. We want growth and we want action and, and we want mystery and we want to be challenged. In fact, you see this drive very, very strongly in the life of a child. And it is the same drive that God wants you and I to have, whether we are young or old. He wants us to grow. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to do great things for God. But all too often, that drive gets destroyed by a killer called discouragement. Discouragement is like a cancer of the soul. And honestly, the real test of your and my character is not so much how we respond to the good times in life when everything is going well, but how we respond when we're in the valley of discouragement. This morning, as we continue in our series, we've titled Chasing God's Heart, which is a series where we have been looking at the different elements of King David's heart. We're going to look at what was probably the most discouraging era of David's entire life. And we're going to talk about a discouraged heart. And you know, when we look at the differing elements within our own hearts, they're not always going to be positive ones. And such is the case when we deal with discouragement. But I want you to understand that, that God uses every experience. He uses every season in our lives to de develop in us the kind of heart that he can truly use. So I'd like you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or you can just follow along with us. All the scriptures I'll be reading today will be up on the screen for you to follow along. And we will be jumping all over again today. But before I get started, I need to point out that this series that we are doing on David is not being presented in chronological order. Two weeks ago, we studied uh, the decline of King Saul, and it ended with him taking his own life on the battlefield when he fell on his sword. Last week, we talked about David as king and how he returned the Ark of the Covenant back to its place of prominence. And in today's message, we're going to once again look at a time before David was king of Israel. So far, we have already seen that David had been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. We also saw that he was employed by King Saul. He had defeated Goliath, and the army loved and accepted him for that. People wrote songs about him. Everything he touched seemed to turn to gold. David was clearly on his way to the palace, and he was going to become king. But a funny thing happened on his way to the office. One by one, all of those wonderful blessings began to get stripped away. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that in your life, but David did. Let me run through them for you. First of all, David loses his job. If you recall, he was promoted from a shepherd boy to a court musician and then to a warrior. He was the most successful army, most successful individual in all the army of Israel. But then one day, King Saul became pathologically jealous of David. He throws a spear at him, trying to pin him to the wall, the scriptures say, and so David had to leave. He fled. He lost his job. He lost his income. He lost his security. He went from being a warrior to being a fugitive overnight. Imagine that. Next, David loses his wife. He had married Saul's daughter, Michael. We talked about her last week. But then in his jealous rage, Saul sent his soldiers to David's home in order to kill David. Well, Michael helps David escape, but she is taken by Saul, and Saul eventually forces her to marry someone else. 
So now David has lost his job and he's lost his family. Next, David loses his mentor. He flees to a a town called Ramah where Samuel, his spiritual mentor, lives. Samuel was the one who assured David of God's presence in his life. Samuel was the one who anointed David to be the next king of Israel and the one who would speak to David. God would speak through Samuel to David. David knew that Samuel would be a safe person and his home would be a safe place for him to go. But no matter how far David ran, it wasn't far enough. Because as always happens, Saul hears about this and he sends soldiers to Ramah. And so David has to make but one more escape. And remember, Saul is an old man. He couldn't go anywhere with David. And soon after this, excuse me, I said Saul, Samuel was an old man. And shortly after this, Samuel dies. So David loses his job. He loses his family. He loses his mentor. And then he loses his best friend. David runs to Jonathan, his best friend, who also happens to be Saul's son. And this is probably the one person in the world that David knew that, that he could trust with literally anything. Well, Jonathan had the courage to stand up to his own father, Saul, and he even risked his life for David. But Jonathan couldn't leave the court, nor could he raise a sword against his own father. So David is on the run one more time, and now he has lost his best friend. So I want to pick up this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, where the scriptures say, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now David has lost his country. So he goes to Gath, and does anybody here remember who else came from Gath? Goliath, the guy that he wasted on the battlefield. Things have gotten so bad for David that that he goes to the Philistines, his mortal enemy. And let's read what happens in 1 Samuel 21, verses 11 through 15. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So, get this, he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at that man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Well, apparently this goes on for a while, but after some time, David gets tired of acting like an insane man to preserve his life, so he decides to move on from there. 1 Samuel 22.1 says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, I want you to grasp all the drama that is going on here. This is a man who is expecting a palace He has been anointed to be the next king of Israel, but he ultimately ends up in a cave and with no explanation as to why. And furthermore, there is no guarantee given to him if or when this whole ordeal is going to be over. And while reading this, I realized more than ever that the events of the scriptures run parallel to our own lives. What I mean is here you have David literally dwelling in a cave, and while none of us are literally living in a cave, we can all still find ourselves living through cave-like experiences, can't we? So I want to talk a little bit this morning about the cave. The cave is where you end up when the very props of life are knocked out from under you. The cave is where you find yourself when everything that holds you up gets stripped away. The cave is where you end up when you thought you were going to do great things for God or have a great family or go boldly where no man has ever gone before, and then it becomes clear that things are not working out the way that you had planned or the way that you had dreamed. 
That's the cave, ladies and gentlemen, and I know some of you are in a cave right now. Maybe it's because you've lost a job and you were under financial pressure. Perhaps you've lost a friend or a, or a family member to death or, or even desert, desertion. Maybe you've lost your marriage. Or if you haven't lost it, maybe it is in a bad place right now. Perhaps your business is suffering. It's starting to come to a screeching halt right before your eyes. Maybe someone has mischaracterized you and have said some pretty horrible things about you that aren't at all true. And what's worse, they're, they're telling other people the same thing. Or maybe you've lost a mentor or a really good friend. Maybe you've been deeply disappointed in a relationship with someone. Maybe you're dealing with a personal health issue and the doctors have given you a very bleak diagnosis. Perhaps you made a bad decision somewhere along the line and everything is crashing down and you find yourself all alone. Whatever the reason, today you're in the cave. Now some of you are not in a cave, the cave right now and you should be thankful for that. But the truth is, someday you will be there. Nobody ever plans on winding up in the cave. But sooner or later, every one of us will spend some time there. And I think the hardest thing about being in the cave is, is that you start to wonder, has God lost track of me? Has God forgotten his promises? D does God remember where I am? Does he even remember who I am? Does he hear me anymore? And am I going to die in this place? These are the thoughts that we have. Well, I've come to tell you something very important this morning about the cave. Caves are where God does some of his best work. It's the truth. The cave is where God molds and, and he shapes human lives like no other place. Because when you're in the cave, you finally get to the point where your, your pride and your self-sufficiency and every other barrier, barrier between you and God gets torn down. And it's in the cave when you realize that all you've really got in this world is the Lord. Now, biblical scholars, much smarter than me, estimate that David spent about 10 years of his life in the wilderness as a fugitive running from King Saul. And on the surface, it, it looked like God's promises to him were never, ever going to come true. And I am certain that these were very difficult years for David, but David was not entirely alone. Because he did have some people who came to him who formed a little community, but they were not a very promising group. 1 Samuel 22 2 tells us about those who made up this community, this little community of David's. And it says this, all those who were in distress or who were in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So David spends years with these guys, and I'd like you to turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 30 for just a moment. This is still in the wilderness era of David's life. Cave to cave, eventually he and his men establish a kind of a refugee community in a village called Ziklag. These men had gotten married. They were having children and starting families, and they would go and they would raid the villages of the enemies of Israel. But one day after a raid, they come home and their village is gone. It has been burnt to the ground. And in addition, their wives and their children have been taken and held captive. This little refugee village established by men who were outlaws and fugitives has now been decimated. In 1 Samuel 34, it says, 30 verse 4, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Have you ever cried like that? You've cried until there are no tears left inside of you, or you cried until your body was so exhausted that you didn't have the strength to cry anymore. They wept aloud 
until they had no strength left to weep. Sounds pretty bad. For David, it's about to get worse. In verse six, it says, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. They were angry that they had lost their families. Now, again, I want to pause for just a moment because here's David, a fugitive from his own country. His own king is trying to kill him. His mentor is dead. His best friend is gone. The Philistines don't trust him. His refugee village is decimated. This ragged little community is ready to stone him, and he has absolutely no one to turn to, nowhere to go. And then comes what I believe is the greatest statement in the entire Bible. Look at the end of verse 6. The King James Version translates like this. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. David was strengthened. David sought his encouragement from the Lord. And I love that. It's a wonderful thing when we get encouraged by one another. It's a great thing to be able for us to come here together and worship like we do. It's great to read some book or listen to a sermon that stirs your spirit. But I need to tell you something vitally important this morning. If, that if, if you find yourself in the cave and there's nobody to turn to, you must find your encouragement in God alone. Because that's when you start to become real strong. This is a great truth that every one of us has to remember. If we want to live a victorious Christian life, we must encourage ourselves in the Lord, not just in caves, but throughout our day. When every other resource was gone, this is what David did. Now, if you've never been able to do this, I think the obvious question becomes, what do I need to do to be encouraged in the Lord? Well, I want to offer you four suggestions from the life of David that I believe will help you. Four steps so that when your cave experience comes, and it will come, you'll be ready for it. If you want to be encouraged in the Lord, the first thing you must do is discuss your discouragement openly with God. You got to name it. You got to call it for what it is. If you turn to Psalm 142, I want you to notice something about this psalm. If you're going to turn there, if not, I'll explain you what, I'm, what I wanted you to see. Many of the psalms, as you know, were written by or are associated with David. And Psalm 142 is one of them. Some of the psalms, when you read them, have a little superscription above them before you read them. And in my Bible, it says a masculine or a contemplation of David when he was in the cave. This psalm, Psalm 142, is a psalm for cave dwellers. This apparently expresses the cry of David's heart while he was spending time in the cave. Look at what it says in verse 1. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell my trouble. A real quick show of hands. How many of you here can complain? How many of you think it's your spiritual gift? No, I didn't mean to ask that. Well, if you can complain, you can do this step. David says, I pour out my complaint to the Lord. Old Testament scholars tell us that there are many different kinds of psalms. Some are called thanksgiving psalms. Some are enthronement psalms about the king. Some are psalms of wisdom. But the number one category, the single most frequent kind of psalm is called a psalm of lament, which is just kind of a fancy word for complaint. That's the most frequent kind of psalm. A psalmist who is complaining to the Lord. And apparently God is not put off by this. God allows people to do this. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I've, I've unloaded before on the Lord. Thankfully, he didn't strike me dead. <laughs> David gets still enough 
before the Lord to get to the very bottom of his pain and discouragement that he's feeling in his gut. Now, many people do not have the courage to do this because they, they stuff their discouragement deep inside of them. They pretend to be okay when they're not. They put on this stoic exterior when deep inside they're, they're, they're torn apart. They force a, a few smiles when inside they're deeply broken, but they avoid the pain that is inside of them. And folks, that doesn't solve anything. And there are some people who live with such a, a, a chronic sense of discouragement that they just get used to it. They don't even notice it, but, but it seeps out of them. It robs them from living a productive life. It sucks the life out of them, and it sucks the life of people who are around them. And I want you to understand something very important about the discouragement that can come upon you as a person. God is never a God of discouragement. When you have a discouraging spirit or, or you take on the ki that kind of a mindset within you, you can know that it is not from God. Now, God does bring up painful things sometimes, and, and he brings on the, convi the, the conviction of sin because it is God's conviction that brings us to repentance over our fallen nature. Sometimes we can even get a vision of God's holiness that at times can overwhelm us because we see how far we are from his holiness. At times, he even brings challenges our way. And those challenges can, can scare us. But God never brings discouragement. God is not a God of discouragement. So if you want to be encouraged in the Lord, the first step you have to take is to be real honest about what it is what that discouragement factor is that's going on in your life. Here's step two. If you want to be encouraged in the Lord, often, not always, you need to take positive action. We're going to pick up the story again in this little village of Ziklag, 1 Samuel 30, verse 7 through 8. Then David said to Abathur the priest, the son of Ameliach, bring me the ephod. Abathur brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Here's what's going on. David is a warrior, and he wants to go before the Lord. So he has this ephod brought before him. And he says, this, this, is, this band has come and they have attacked our village. They've destroyed our homes. They've taken our possessions. They have kidnapped our wives and our children. They will at best be prisoners and at worst, they will kill them. So should we go after them? Should I take action, God, or should we just be quiet and sit here? And the answer is from God, go. Now, some of you are wondering, what an ephod is. And you're also wondering, do they sell them at Walmart and how much do they cost? Because I'd like to get my hands on those. Well, as we know from last week, an ephod was a priestly garment that David got into when he danced before the Lord while the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back to Jerusalem. But there is a particular part of the ephod called the Urim and Thummim. Many say that they were gemstones that were sewn into a breast piece on the actual garment, while others say that they were gemstones that were kept in a pouch. But, ever, but whatever, wherever they were, were placed, the Urim, which means lights, and the Thummim, which means perfections, they were used by the priests while seeking and determining God's will. Now, it's unclear the precise nature or use of the Urim and the Thummim, because the Bible simply doesn't give us enough information. But what is clear is that David is seeking direction from the Lord. He is seeking God's will in this situation. And there's a very clear message that God gives to David, and that is to take action. Don't just sit there. See, sometimes people get stuck in chronic discouragement 
because they don't devote any time or any, any, any energy to discover what it is that is actually creating the discouragement that is within them in the first place. And then they feel, fail to take the necessary steps in order to deal with it. They're just waiting for some outside force to take care of things when God is calling them to take action. Let's use discouragement in a marriage as an example. Neil Warren, a Christian psychologist, said that what kills marriages more than anything else is a lack of hope. And when you think about it, lack of hope is a driving force behind discouragement in most every area of your life. Because without hope, the motivation to change dies. And so you just simply quit trying. So his recommendation to couples who are struggling is to take one area of their marriage where they get discouraged. And he says, if you, will, if you can get a 10% improvement over a 12-month period of time, there's going to be a huge difference because you are going to regain hope again. In other words, identify an area of great discouragement and struggle in your marriage. Make it your focus as a couple to work on that area, that specific area. And within a year's time, if you can make just a 10% improvement, it will make a difference. And you will begin to have hope in not just that area, but other areas within your covenant of marriage. Because when that happens, people begin to believe that there is some correlation between their efforts and the result that they experience. And then motivation starts to skyrocket because people can make tremendous strides when there is hope. Now, some of you are living in discouragement and you're just sitting there while God is calling you to get up and to take action just like he did with David. So here's my challenge for you today. Identify that area of great discouragement in your life. Identify it and work on seeing just a 10% improvement and then do it. Quit living in chronic helplessness, waiting for some external force to give you the motivation to change you. God is calling you to act. So commit to taking some kind of an action. You see, whenever I have taken action, when I didn't want to, whenever I have taken that first step, that's where God has always met me. And that's where he's, he's helped me to take more steps than just that first one. And when you do this, you will receive hope and you'll be encouraged in the Lord. So the first step of being encouraged in the Lord is to be open and honest with him about what it is that's making you discouraged. And that takes some courage. And, and, and secondly, the second step is to take action. And that requires a decision. But there's a third thing you must do when you're in the cave, and it's real important. And that is to resist temptation. If you turn back to 1 Samuel 24, there's an important connection between the cave that you're in and temptation. When you're in the cave and you are discouraged, you find yourself in a very vulnerable place. What I mean is you will be vulnerable to any temptation that promises to get you out of the cave or to provide you with a few moments of relief. 1 Samuel 24, one through four says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep's pen along the way, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, and I want you to notice this, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. David's men are saying to him, here is your way out of the cave. Now this scripture is providing us with a little more detail, more TMI than we really wanted to know about Saul in that he was relieving himself. But the reason this detail is shared is for us to understand that Saul is in a very vulnerable place at this moment. There is nothing Saul could do. 
He doesn't even know what's going on. And David's men are saying to him, this is the day that the Lord spoke of. God promised to deliver you, David, and now this is your day. Saul is here. You can't let him get away. You can kill him. This must be what God wants from you. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. He doesn't want you to be miserable wandering around the rest of your life. God doesn't doesn't want you to be in the wilderness any longer. Saul deserves this judgment, David. This is a clear way for you to get out of the cave. It must be God's will. And don't think for a minute that David wasn't tempted to do what his men were saying. I mean, this could have put an end to it all, but David failed to take the bait of temptation. Or as John Bevere puts it in his book, the bait of Satan. Instead, David went towards Saul. He takes out a knife and he cuts off a corner of the king's rope while he's relieving himself. And because of the darkness in the cave, Saul is apparently oblivious to the whole thing. But even after doing this, this shows David's heart. He is conscience stricken for taking this small little action against the king. Verse six, he says, The Lord forbid I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Remember, before Saul was king, he was anointed king as well. He's just a king that's gone bad. And with these words, David rebuked his men, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul leaves the cave and goes on his way. It must have been so tempting for David to think, this was my golden opportunity to get out of the cave. But David knew that it was wrong. It would have been a shortcut that ultimately, I think, would have destroyed his soul. It certainly would have set a strong message across all of Israel that the way to become king is to kill the existing king. And I think that would have destroyed David. And I want to say something to you very very seriously right now. Some of you are in the cave today. You're in a discouraging place for some reason. And there is a shortcut to relief that's tempting you. I believe some of you are here today and the whole reason God brought you here is for these next 60 seconds. Because you have a decision to make. And that decision is, will you submit to God's will Or will you act on what you think is best? Maybe you're single. You've been single for a long time. And you feel so all alone. And there's a relationship that promises intimacy and closeness for you. And it's so tempting for you to think, this is available to me and it would be so nice. And and I'm so miserable and I'm so alone in this cave. And you can totally rationalize, God wants me to be happy, right? But I want you to understand this morning that it's a shortcut. It is not God's will for your life to get in that kind of a relationship. And it contradicts his desire for your life. And the question that your future pivots on right now is, will you take a shortcut? Or will you submit to the Lord? Will you say, all right, God, I'll spend more time in this cave if this is where you want me. As hard as it is, I will not take any shortcuts. Maybe you face financial temptation, an opportunity for you to make money in uh, unethical or in questionable ways. Maybe you have a temptation to deceive somebody about something. Maybe it's the temptation to just ignore a pattern of behavior that has become very sinful and very destructive to your personal life. Maybe it's a temptation for you to quit something that you've given your word you would do. And you know God is calling you to endure in what your word said, but it would feel so good to just say, I'm out of here. I'm dropping it. I'm quitting. Maybe it's a a temptation to keep some wrongdoing that you've done hidden, when the only way to be relieved of it is to finally bring it out into the light and be honest about it. Well, today God is asking you this question. Will you have the courage not 
to take a shortcut, to not give in to temptation, to stay in the cave even though it would be easier for you to get out. Let me tell you something. Those shortcuts can destroy your soul. So one of the things that David has to do when he's in the cave is to resist a very difficult temptation. And David does this by naming what it was that discouraged him and by encouraging himself in the Lord. And then he took action when it was appropriate and God told him to take action. And then he resisted temptation. He resisted it. And when it was hard to resist, but then there's a fourth thing that you've got to realize when you find yourself in the, in the cave and when you want to be encouraged by the Lord, and it is this. Your ultimate refuge is in God. Sometimes when you're in the cave and there are prayers and bold action and a, and a pure life going on, you can get out of it. But sometimes you're in the cave and no human effort can get you out of it. And it's something that, that you just cannot fix. And it's something that you just cannot heal. And it's something you just cannot escape. And all you can do is hang on to the Lord just to find your ultimate refuge. There are words that David used over and over in the many Psalms he wrote. God, when I get myself into a mess, he says, I will go and I will seek you. I will find my refuge in you. I, my trust is in you. You see, finding ultimate refuge in God means to get yourself so immersed into God's presence and so convinced of God's goodness and so devoted to his lordship that you find that even the cave is a safe place for you to be. Why? Because God is there with you, just like he was there with David. This is what it means to find ultimate refuge in God. Some of you today are in the cave and you can't get out of it. Well, some of you aren't there yet, but you will because sooner or later we all spend some time in there. And on that day, all you and I can do is to find refuge in almighty God, cling to the one piece of good news that matters the most, which is Jesus understands all about caves because he's been there. He's been there. Jesus suffered like us, and he suffered for us. The Son of God had everything stripped away from him. He lost his position as a teacher. He lost his safety. His friends ran away from him. He lost the adoration of the cheering crowds early on in his ministry. He had his life threatened by his enemies. And ultimately, he went to the cross. And on that cross, for a moment of time, God, the Father, turned his back on his son. And Jesus suffered an excruciating death. He died. And they put his body in a cave. And they thought that it was finished. But Satan always forgets that God does some of his best work in the caves. Caves are where God resurrects dead stuff. So they put him in the cave for a while, but he was only there for three days because death could not keep him there. And you too will live to see yourself walk out of that cave that you're in, in boldness and with a new resolve. I don't know about your cave, and I don't know if one is coming in the future, and I don't know how scary it's going to be for you, but we will all spend time in the cave. And it is essential that you remember this. God does his best work in caves. Therefore, you must encourage yourself in the Lord. Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this? One of my greatest concerns as your pastor is how often Christian men and women seek encouragement from sources other than God. We're masters at it, aren't we? We almost make God our last resort because we go through all the physical things we know to do instead of going to our source right at the beginning. And don't get me wrong, it's, it's good to encourage one another. We're, we're supposed to do that, and we do that. 
But when you're in the cave, you need something far greater than anything any other person can provide to you. You need what only God can provide. This message today reminds me of the many people who are carrying heavy burdens. You're in the cave right now. You've been carrying around burdens that you just haven't been able to let go of. You've been carrying them for so long that you just learned to accept them. You've accepted them as just a, a normal part of your life. You're living in the cave and some of you don't even fully realize it. I've talked about it and you're going, he's talking about where I'm at. And you don't share it with anybody out of fear that you're going to be perceived as, as needy. And it's just not in your DNA to be that way. Nor is it in your DNA to publicly respond to an altar call at a church. But this morning, I want to open up this altar to anyone who needs to be encouraged in the Lord. But let me say this. To be encouraged in the Lord, you've first got to know the Lord. You've got to know who he is. And the first step of that is to be in a redemptive relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people say that they're Christians, and yet they've never received salvation. Let me tell you something. You're not a Christian because you live in a Christian nation. And I would even question that term Christian nation because I think America is like way off of that by now. We're the remnant, folks. So you're not a Christian because you were raised in a Christian nation. And you're not a Christian because your mom and dad professed a relationship with Jesus Christ. You become a Christian when you submit yourself personally to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You acknowledge him as Lord, the one who died on the cross and his shed blood atoned for your sin. And he is the only way to God the Father. And then you repent of your sin. You ask for forgiveness for your sin. And the Bible says that he cleanses you of all unrighteousness. The scriptures say that you become a new creation. Your past is now forgiven, and you're given a fresh start. And I don't know of anybody who couldn't use a fresh start, a reset, a kind of a reset on your life. And my prayer is that you will be obedient this morning to the tugging that you feel in your heart, which is being brought on by the Holy Spirit of God for you to enter into a redemptive relationship with Jesus. For those of you who are already in a relationship with Christ, but you're finding yourself at this moment in the cave. Today is your day to begin to find encouragement in the Lord. I want you to come, out to, come down to this altar this morning, and I want you to pour out your complaints to the Lord. I want you to do step one. Let the Lord know what's bothering you. He already knows, but you know what the, what the purpose of this is for? Because you need to hear you say it. You need to admit it. You need to admit your reliance on the, on the Lord. Because as long as you think that, that, that you've got this thing under control, you're never going to get out of the cave. Some of you may want to come up here and ask the Lord to give you healing in your heart and in your outlook towards some of these things you've been carrying around in your life for a long time. For you to come up here and to receive the assurance that the Lord is with you, even during this difficult time, and to be encouraged by the knowledge that God is always faithful. This altar is open to anyone for any reason this morning. If you're sick and you need a touch from the Lord, you can come down. If you, if you, if you need supernatural help in some situation in your life, you can come down. I just want to spend some time at the altar with the Lord, and I can come and lay hands and pray for you, and Anthony can join me on that. And, and after we're done with that, we will close this service in prayer. But while the worship team sings, if you want to spend some time with the Lord and be encouraged in the Lord as David did, come down to this altar and seek his face.
Continue to pray, and they can stay here as long as they would like. I'd like you to bow your heads with me, and we close this service in prayer. Precious Father, we thank you, as always, for your word. It runs parallels with everything that we deal with. But more importantly, we thank you for the examples that have been set forth in your word that we can follow to find our way out of cave-type moments when the darkness seems to be closing in and we don't have any answers, Father, we can come to you and we can not only be encouraged by you, but you can also help us find our way out. 
I pray for every person at this altar today, God, for whatever reason they have come, I pray that you'll bring freedom to their thinking, to their minds, of where they're at and where they're going, to be reminded that there is a God in heaven and you are with them and you are strengthening them and you are guiding their path and that you are encouraging them at this moment. Pray that that encouragement would continue throughout this day and throughout the week and they would find relief and freedom from that place that they are at. And Father, I know there are some who didn't come to this altar and yet they still have been pouring out their complaint to you and I pray that you'll touch their lives. Pray that they will be reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness and that they would be encouraged also in you and you would strengthen them. Ultimately, God, we pray that these times that we spend in the cave, though they may be difficult, that you would use those times to grow us and to strengthen us and to make us stronger and better men and women of God. But then ultimately, God, we pray that you'll get us out of that cave so that we can move forth and be productive in our Christian journey and with those who surround us. So Lord, as we go our separate ways today, pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the things we do, the places that we go, the conversations that we have. Let them be conversations that build people up and not tear them down. And Father, let us be shining bright lights in this very dark world that we would shine so brightly the love of Christ that others would be compelled to ask us what it is that's different about us and you would open that door for us to share our faith with them. And as always, Lord, I pray that you'll give each one of us an opportunity this week, a God-ordained moment where you will bring someone into our path so that we can tell them about our Lord and our Savior and his goodness and perhaps lead them to the cross of Calvary and if nothing else, invite them to come to church with them so that they can find you. And God, I also pray that between now and the time we gather together again, that you would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us. You would keep us safe of any sicknesses that might come upon us or diseases. Keep us safe so that we can gather together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. As we go our separate ways today, Father, let us go in love loving those we come into contact with, even those who are difficult to love. I guess what I'm saying, Lord, is help us to become like you. Amen. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. amen. And amen. Thank you for being here.